Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, June 18th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's what you need to know today. The record-breaking, sweltering heat wave in the West. Plus, how TV is embracing queer people and stories. But first, today's one big thing, where the U.S.-Russia relationship goes from here. It's Friday, which means it's time to talk politics. Let's go back to a moment earlier this week when President Biden was speaking to the press in Geneva about his meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Putin had just done a lot of lying to reporters in his news conference. When it was Biden's turn to face the media, things got a little testy when he was pressed on the meeting. Why are you so confident he'll change his behavior, Mr. President? Yeah, I'm not confident he'll change his behavior. What the hell? What do you do all the time? So when did I say I was confident? You I said, said in the next six I months said, to be able to What I said was, let's get it straight. I said what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. That was an exchange with CNN's Caitlin Collins. Axios' Hans Nichols is here with us to talk about that moment in the aftermath of President Biden's first foreign trip. Hey, Hans. Morning. Hans, so the headlines are reading that relationships between the two countries are at a Cold War low. Can we first unpack this moment for America and Russia? What does a summit mean for foreign policy? Look, I finally get to use this line, and that is that all happy summits are the same and all unhappy summits are uniquely different, to sort of paraphrase Tolstoy. And what you saw there at the end was what happens when a summit goes south. Now, that's not to say this is the worst summit in the history of summitry or that the conversation behind closed doors was terrible. In a lot of ways, the G7 and NATO, utterly forgettable, right? There are communiques. There's an Atlantic charter. They said they had an agreement. None of that will be remembered. What will likely be remembered are the optics of this trip and then that final press conference and Biden losing his cool. Now, the challenge for the White House is to sort of overlay that with other talk on what they think their accomplishments were. Do you think that this the way that he handled this speaks to the White House trying to put a good face on it? Or is this Joe Biden's optimistic way of looking at the world? Anyone that knows Joe Biden or covered him during the campaign know that he can snap and that he has a temper. Sort of the broader question is you have to be optimistic coming out of these meetings. So in this case, you know, they're going to have ambassadors return. There's some talk maybe on a convention on cyber, although that's a little fluffy. There's some talk on maybe on, on what to do next on arms control and strategic stability. So, uh, you know, the deliverables here weren't huge packages, but there was something. Uh, whether or not that something qualifies as anything, if that makes sense in English and or Russian. Hans Nichols covers the Biden White House for Axios. Thanks, Hans. Thanks for having me. In 15 seconds, this Pride Month, one take on LGBTQ representation on the small screen. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Welcome back to Axios Today. There are tons of shows today that feature LGBTQ plus characters across networks and streaming devices, but those shows look so different than they did 10 to 15 years ago. Naveen Kumar is a New York-based culture critic and journalist, and he's here with us now to talk about how much television has changed when it comes to queer representation. Hey, Naveen. Hey, how are you? So how much different does this look than 10 or 15 years ago? Very different. The big difference that we see is the explosion of streaming services. You know, if we look back at historical moments, big LGBTQ moments in history of television, like Ellen coming out on her series, 
or even something like Will and Grace, that was really a breakthrough. There were only sort of four or five networks every night where there were sitcoms or dramas on and everyone was watching one or the other of them. So the audiences for those series were so big that it was, uh, if something happened, it was a cultural moment. So now, of course, you know, our attentions in so many ways are fractured all over the place, right? So everything is just streaming. Every sort of week, it seems like there's a new service and a lot more of them feature diverse characters, you know, queer characters and characters of color and, you know, trans characters, but their audiences are sort of tough to measure. As a culture critic, I wonder how you're thinking about television's ability to affect change when most of our society has kind of moved on from these mass viewing events. So the television that we're seeing now is reflecting real changes in society, right? So television that's aimed towards young audiences like has to incorporate this idea that something like twice as many Gen Z people are identifying as, as queer or gender variant than in previous generations. In my mind, like series that are aimed towards young audiences, you know, they're full of teachable moments about coming out and finding acceptance and communicating with your friends. Young kids are at home and they can stream that in their bedroom and they can see, look, it's not just me, I'm not alone. When I was at eight, it would have been, you know, really significant thing for me to see. Are we seeing this visibility behind the scenes? There is both an idea lingering that audiences don't necessarily want to see queer stories and that queer actors or creators can only do one thing. So I think the big push to be focused on is getting uh, queer representation behind the scenes in the director's chair, in the writer's room, because, you know, there's a depth of understanding to our stories that they have that, you know, you can't replace. Naveen Kumar is a culture critic and journalist. Thank you for joining us, Naveen. Thank you for having me. We told you last week about the record drought in the western U.S. Well, Axios' Andrew Friedman is here with an update as a heat wave intensifies in the American West and Southwest. So much so that 40 million people are likely to see temperatures reach or exceed 100 degrees over the coming days. Andrew, what's causing this? We have what's known as a blocking high-pressure system that's parked over the western U.S. You know, ordinarily we like high-pressure systems because they bring nice weather, but they bring sinking air. And when air sinks, it warms and dries, and it's diverting all other weather systems around it. Meteorologists are kind of geeking out over how strong it is. The epicenter of the heat has just sort of migrated from one section of the West to another. What does this mean for power demand? Power demand spikes during a heat wave. And because of the drought, you're having uh, lower capacity for hydroelectric dams. Even the Hoover Dam is not putting out as much energy as it normally would. So when everybody turns on the air conditioner in Arizona, New Mexico, California, these grids need to really figure out exactly how to continue to meet demand. And this is the type of situation that authorities have been fearing for this summer. And it's only June. It's a good reminder also for everyone to check on their neighbors if you are experiencing that this weekend. Axios's Andrew Friedman covers climate and energy. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Today is a day of celebration. It is not only a day of pride, 
It is also a day for us to reaffirm and rededicate ourselves to action. And with that, I say, happy Juneteenth, everybody. Vice President Kamala Harris there just before President Biden signed a bill into law yesterday, making Juneteenth a federal holiday in the United States. Biden said the moment will be one of the greatest honors of his presidency. Tomorrow, on Juneteenth, we'll be dropping the latest in our Hard Truth series about systemic racism. This month, we're focused on business and entrepreneurship. And I'll be speaking with two Black and Latina women about getting involved in the very white cannabis industry and working to profit off the same drug that crushed their communities growing up. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. We're produced by Alexandra Boti, Justin Kaufman, Nuria Marquez-Martinez, Sabina Singhani, Naomi Shaven, and Amy Padula. Our sound engineer is Alex Sugiyara. Dan Bobkoff is our executive producer. Sarah Kehelani Gu is our executive editor. And special thanks to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. At Pushkin, our executive producers are Lee Tal Malad and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Have a great weekend. <laughs> 